Okay. Let's see where we are here today. We have so much to do. Uh, I, I got to say right off the bat that um, there will be no class. I didn't have a place to put. Oh, I need to say this. Our, our email has completely changed now. The other one's disconnected. So it's cliffside, cliffsideoffice at gmail.com. So those of you trying to reach me that way, the old one is gone. And let's see what else I got. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, United States, India, Australia, and Japan have formed a alliance of sorts against China, which I think is significant. And the Chinese, of course, are not happy about that, but it's obvious that they intend to dominate the South China Sea and all of all of uh, Southeast Asia, and, and they want to gobble up as much material as they can. And the Australians, the Japanese, recognize the threat to them more than anybody. Uh, Taiwan, of course, would be the worst. So India also has uh, antipathy towards China, especially with the way this uh, Chinese... Uh, clearly, it came out of China. This uh, virus came out of that uh, Wuhan facility. I think the evidence is now uh, mounted to the place where it no longer can be uh, uh, disavowed. So... India is hostile to China, and the United States should be hostile to China. I don't know if we will be, but we should be, because they intend to dominate uh, economically as soon as they can. So I just noticed this U.S., India, Australia, Japan alliance. I think it's very important to notice. Um, Also, uh, today I got a whole bunch of phone calls, uh, which is kind of unusual for Sunday, but I got them, and I got one from a guy uh, called me up, from Gary from New Jersey. I just want to say hi, Gary from New Jersey, and he wanted everyone to know that uh, the reason that he's interested in uh, Cliffside is because of quantum physics and differential equations. Now he didn't say differential equations, but he would have had I asked him. I know that. You know, just uh, amazing to hear from you folks out there. Uh, and uh, we just always appreciate it, especially uh, the people that run this operation, to know how much they appreciate you. Okay, no class until June the 6th. I'm off uh, next week. Uh, Lori and I, the world's oldest sheetrock bathroom remodelers, sheetrock sheet rock crew and bathroom remodelers, we have picked up a bathroom remodel that we're going to take on Monday. And it'll, it should take us... Uh, I would guess we're going to have two weeks off. I think Lori and I will be done with the bathroom remodel in a year. So, <laughs> so we're really good at what we do, and we're really slow. So you got both of those going for it. Okay. Here we are, May the 23rd, 2021. Uh, check the clock. Lecture discussion number 139 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job. We're still there. First uh, Kings 13, Second Kings 23. Haven't forgotten them. Okay, we got this list uh, from May the 16th, the lecture uh, number 138. And as you can see, it is a gorged, most holy dry erase board. In other words, it's filled completely. Uh, the platinum model, reversible, dry erase board, most holy of all kind. And we have classifications A all the way down to P. And that's the plan today. Everything from Genesis 3-4, which is A. Uh, to the mystery of the divine indwelling, which is P, uh, Galatians 2.20, Colossians 1.26.27. So that's our list. And obviously, again, Genesis 3.4 incorporates uh, Ezekiel 28.16 because Genesis 3.4 is Satan coming into the realm of the Garden of Eden in order to move the woman from saved to unsaved. That's what he was doing. From clean to unclean, if you want to think of that. From life to death, either way. And Genesis 3-4 incorporates Ezekiel 28-16, where it began. That's the abundance of your traffic. So that is the angelic host being given that lie of Satan that Eve, of course, got on a secondary level. Isaiah 14, 12-14, the ambitions of Satan. Psalm 10.1, why is God so far off? Why does God allow these things? What is his reasons? We've covered that. And then again, Job 1, 8 through 12, and Job 2, 1 through 10, the two uh, attacks onto Job, uh, which become very important. So that's Genesis 3, 4, and all of that material goes with it. And for those who are unfamiliar with Cliffside, joining us for the first and last time, uh, Genesis 3, 4, 
and to just pound it in here, is the lie of Satan being presented to the woman in the identical form that it was presented to the angelic host? And this list, as you know, you should know, and maybe you know, maybe you don't, but last week, the angelic host is the essence of this. I'll get to that in a minute. So the lie of Satan at Ezekiel 28.16 is now being presented to the woman. And the lie of Satan at its core, as you know, you've been here for a long time, is comprised of the denial of true existence. Essentially, the supposition or the proposal is philosophical in nature, in that uh, Satan presents a scenario which leads to God being a liar, and therefore evil, and the source of evil. The Exodus 17, 1-7 questions, essentially, is what this is, i.e. that God had created beings that he always intended to extinguish, to annihilate, uh, to murder, to exterminate. You have a, a lie, I'm sorry, you have a life that is temporal, and it's, therefore it's not really life. Life cannot be temporal in order to be life. The entirety of such has been, uh, this uh, lie of Satan has been utterly repudiated by the crucifixion and the resurrection. Where is that on the board here? Uh, crucifixion and the resurrection. I should put resurrection here. I have it on my other list. So let me do that. It belongs, has to be there. That many many times, uh, but uh, and that of course essentially is the mystery of godliness. First Timothy three sixteen. So the crucifixion resurrection of Christ. First Timothy three sixteen. The incarnation, the God, mystery of godliness, the greatest mystery of all, is the repudiation of the lie of Satan. Okay. So and knowing and I get lots of questions like this. I get them from all over the the spectrum here. I tell people all the time, knowing how to understand and how to articulate and reason your way through the lie of Satan and the repudiation, why, for example, the crucifixion uh, and the resurrection and the entombment of Christ, how does that dispel everything that Satan did? That, in my opinion, is a requisite capability uh, for every Christian, certainly for every Christian church. Uh, Gary asked me, he said, uh, uh, he had two things that he liked about Cliffside more than anything else. Uh, one is that um, we are not a church that is dominated by economic pressure. We don't intend to get rich here. All you have to do sometime to recognize whether or not a church is actually functioning biblically is look at the compensation packages of the administrative staff. I'm looking at my administrative staff here, and I know their compensation packages. <laughs> and they got enough money to buy a bucket of chicken every Sunday, and they, and they lord it over me. They do, knowing that I can't have it anymore. But every Christian church should be able to handle Genesis 3, 4, Isaiah 14, Exodus 28, and understand the element of existence that is there. Satan is saying, you really don't exist. You're an automaton. And God never intended for you to have any duration to your to this thing that he would call life. Because it's not really life, it doesn't have duration. And so, uh, if you can't handle that, then unfortunately you're in a place where you're not very efficient. How's that for euphemism? But frankly, you're failing. And, and so the current state of affairs in the uh, age of Laodicea, which is where we're at, is uh, exactly what we should expect from Scripture. We, we're really bad as a church. Some might uh, represent the time of Laodicea as the ostentatious church, and I slightly modify the adjective. I, ostentatious is a good word, but I've changed it to ostentatious. <laughs> and of course, as you know, the synonym for ostentatious Hatius is obviously vomitive in Revelation 3.16 and regurgitive. Uh, pick whichever. Both are acceptable. Just to say this, the church is really bad at its job in this age. We are really bad. I watched a presentation the other day of a, essentially a comedian type person and uh, his representation of the church is a elementary childish caricature and the church deserves it 
because the ostentatiousness of it has gotten to the point where it is um, it's, it's so it's there's a joke out there now is that if you open your church in Bible they'll take it, or, I'm sorry you open your Bible in church they'll take it away from you because the last thing the pastor wants is for you to read something out of the Bible the church has failed it, it is a destructive mess designed only to produce income and the pastor's salaries are in the millions good luck with that think about that camel that needle and all that stuff Okay, but that was a digress rant. Where was I? Genesis 3, 4 to Colossians 1, 26, 27. So that's what we're doing. Uh, Colossians 1, 26, 27 is the second mystery. Very important. The indwelling. It said last week that the mystery of Christ in the saved was something that the lie of Satan did not anticipate. When Satan put his lie together, he did not know about, the one, the triunity of God. Genesis 1, 1, 1, 26, 3, 22. He didn't know. Couldn't comprehend it. Couldn't even imagine it. And I, I'm going to submit, obviously, that uh, the sameness, the oneness, this truth, this mystery, unknown to the angels, and again, could not be discerned. Only could be found out by it being revealed. And God did reveal it at 1-1 Genesis, 1-26 and 3-22. That's the first time he did it. And that's also true of the crucifixion and the incarnation and the resurrection. No one could conceive of any of those things. It had to be revealed. And the indwelling is in the same category. And it dismisses Satan's contesting of the goodness of God, which is what he's doing in 3.4, Genesis. As his goodness, as the goodness of God applies to our existence. Let me pound that in a little bit. If God is not good, we have no existence. Uh, and so the definition of living being, Genesis 2.7, Genesis 120, 121.24, 128.130, 1.30, all of those give us God's definition of living being. And living being means eternity. Now, your destination is an element of your decision. But your eternity is given. And so we call this Satan's indwelling problem, or I call it Satan's indwelling problem. Because how it affects the situation. Because he could not figure that out and did not figure out until it was told. The mystery of the indwelling likewise dispels this perishing temporal argument that Satan gave Eve. That which declares that all living beings, which that's it's contrary, right? It's contrapositioned. You can't call a living being subject to cessation. That's a contradiction in basis and fundamental. In other words, Satan says that what we call living beings is, such, is subject to nothingness or extinction. And that, of course, is the atheistic evolutionary position. Now you know where they got it. They think it's new. They think the atheists think they thought of it first. It's in Genesis 3-4. It's in Ezekiel 28-16. It's in Isaiah 14. Uh, <coughs> Isaiah 14. And again, if this were so, then none have existence, none have life, all are in a pitiful or a pitiable state. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. We uh, of all men are the most pitiable if this, if we do not have existence. And the resurrection of Christ ends this argument as well. And that's a line L here. So M, I'm sorry, P and L attack what happens at A. Think of this as a great big chess game. And you may know, some of you know, that uh, I, I used to play a pretty good level at chess when I was young. I did okay. And I'm studying it again because uh, I have to teach the grandchildren. It's the only way they're going to make money for me. And send them out. And they're going to, his seven and eight year olds, and I'm going to steal money. Never mind. But I'm studying chess, and chess has a cause and effect element to it. Every time I make a move, there is a counter move. And I have to anticipate that counter move. That's what this format is. It is a bunch of moves and counter moves. Satan has his counterings, and we have counterings to Satan that have been given to us by Scripture. And so Scripture is a collection of a refutation of the lie of Satan in Genesis 3, 4, or Isaiah 14, or Ezekiel 28. So, again, the resurrection of Christ and, and his incarnation, the indwelling, all of that, the 173, 880, all of those things are evidences. 
Why, why did God reveal the 173.8.8? This is in the addendum 2. That's addendum 1, addendum 2. Oh, I also have really fast. I have an unnamed Anna called me and wanted to ask another question. Gosh, I'm tired of her. <laughs> Where did she come from? I just can't figure out what happened. But she uh, wanted to know the naming question, which is Revelation 2.7. You get a white stone in a new name. He says so. I give you a white stone in a new name. Why does he do that? Well, clearly it has something to do with individuality in Psalm 139.14. We are individually distinct. All of us are. And he names us, every one of us, with an individual name. How many will there be, the saved? His multitudes. There's no, there's no numbers in the Greek or the Hebrew to account for it. Thousands and thousands. And so you see individuality here because each one of us is assigned an individual name that no one else has. Now the unnamed Anna wants to pick her own name. <laughs> what, are you crazy? Anna. <laughs> <laughs> Take your white stone and your new name and your individuality. There is no one like you. There is no dog like my dog. Her memories are exactly her own. There isn't any other dog that has her memories. There's no other person that has your information. Your information is completely singular. And he makes that point. And so that tells you something about your existence. If you're an individual and there's none like you, how does that apply to your existence? So this, again, is another existence question. That's why I bring it up. But again, lastly, the second Adam is the same as the first Adam in type. In the sense, I'm sorry, the first Adam is in type of the second Adam. The second Adam, Christ, the last Adam, is naming everything. How much? What is required intellectually to name everything? All saved people. And then let's go to the animals. Just let's just pick the horses. There's hundreds of millions of horses up that that he uh, he refers to in Scripture. Hundreds of millions. He's going to name every single one of them because they're all individual. He likes individuality, and that tells you that uh, you have existence if you follow the logical format. Okay. Why did he give us 173, 883, 60, and 483? Uh, that may not mean anything to you, but this is 173,880 days. This is 360 uh, days in one year, and that's 483 years. This is 572 years, this is 3,829 years, this is 240 years, this is 210 years. All of that is incredible information. Why did he give it to us, is what I'm asking. The point is, yeah, 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 point. Yeah, point. Yeah, point. Yeah. You know, it could be, yeah, point. No, it's yeah, point. It could be, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just could. If you put a demarcation there. Just wondering. Okay. The list begins with the lie of Satan as it should and terminates with the indwelling, which is another proof of existence. Life as God defines it. How does the indwelling prove you have existence? He says Christ in you. It's the second mystery. That proves existence. That destroys 3-4 Genesis. So, and between that is this, betwixt that, if you wish, is a parade of evidences of chess moves for us to consider. Think of yourself as Magnus Carlsen or Anand, Vishyarma Anand, or some people like uh, Nakamura, uh, Wesley, So Wesley, Wesley So, sorry. Uh, I've studied the, the current, in my day it was Bobby Fischer and Spassky and Kasparov. And those guys were playing chess, and I studied everything they did as much as I could. You had to buy a book, just like when I played cards, you had to buy books. Today, you just go on YouTube. It's amazing what you can learn so quickly. So I've been busy taking chess puzzles. Chess will teach you how to think differently. You won't just take obvious things. You'll look for the non-obvious, and that's you'll look for the hidden, for the traps, if you will. Okay, all of that said, uh, this list is just as it's composed, just as it's composed here, is under the advocacy of the angelic realm. The frame of surveillance, if you wish to think of that way, of the angelic realm. That's the heading. The heading would be, uh, the thesis being the timeline of the spiritual dominion. That's what this is about. 
It's not about humanity as much as it's focusing on angels. We participate because you can't separate us from participating with one another. But dynamically, this is about the angelic realm, the timeline again of the angels and the motivation. When did things happen and why did they happen? Why do the angels make the choices they make? And that specifically is applied to May 16, Lecture 138. So that question that I asked there. Why has the human kingdom, same question, I'm repeating it, been withdrawn from the angel kingdom? As I hope that I have presented in the past here, there was a time when it was very much different than it is now. We don't see them. We rarely have any contact with them at all. If And anybody that says they've had contact is usually specious. So when did it end? Because the angels were all over the place in, in Israel. There's demon possession everywhere in Israel at the time of Christ. So what happened? When did it happen? What made it happen? Why are we now unable to see or detect the spiritual reality? And this line of investigation naturally forced the categorical question. Namely, what event or condition precipitated the disengagement, the segregation of the angelic reality from the human-animal materiality? I have a human-animal materiality. Now, I have never seen an angel. You will find hundreds of people that claim that they have, thousands of people. I can just ask them a few questions and find out they're lying. I hate to give this away, but all these people that write books that say they saw Christ just before they died or and they came back, they always describe him completely wrong. That's why I handed out all those pictures. Pat Marvell Smith. This is what he looks like, Revelation 19, 20, 21. He doesn't look like they described him. They describe him as a, as a white guy with blue eyes with his hands together. I mean, they completely blow it. They have no idea who he is. They think he's a human being. He's just an endowed human being with a little special power. They have absolutely no idea. They can't describe him. They don't know who he is. And so it's easy to catch them. Now somebody will figure out what I'm saying and they'll describe him properly and they'll make more money than the other idiots. I'm sorry, I shouldn't. I'm just very suspicious of people that seek attention that seek financial compensation for something that should be given away for free. If you saw Christ and you talked to Christ, how dare you uh, try to make money off of it and write a book? I don't think you'd want to. You wouldn't. You absolutely would never do it. Uh, Anyway, I digress rant again. But so... Why is there this segregation, this this veil, as I have called it, between the animal reality, human reality, materiality, and the angelic reality? And is there a difference between what's happening with the fallen angels and the unfallen? We know the unfallen have uh, Genesis 28, 12 through 15. They're on the ladder. They have a ministry. They have assignments. They're watchmen. They're messengers. They rise up for Israel, Michael. Uh, does Gabriel all of these uh, they have assignments what about the fallen angels how are they different from the unfallen with respect to our capability to see them I think Dave asked me that today I got another call and Dave this pretty much Dave's question if he exists and so that again that's that's what's on the most holy hydrate uh, uh, reversible dry erase board today those are the subjects the passages that I have thought I deem to be the principles, those that contain the most applicative information when we're trying to figure out the angelic timeline to the question at hand, in other words. Now, as usual, some might disagree. They might look at my list and say, boy, that stinks. And some conceivably may offer other areas of scripture that they consider to be more relevant. They'd erase some of mine and put some of theirs on, and that's perfectly fine. You can make your own list. One of the things that I've run in the most when I've done this particular lecture is the angel of the Lord uh, references, all those occurrences. And it's over here in the addendum. The angel of YHVH. That's how he's put. I shouldn't walk away from the mic, should I? Okay, now we want the angel of YHVH. The ineffable name of Christ. I really enjoy this thing. <laughs> 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 what, somebody, who, who was it that 
that said, it sounds like, you sound like Grandpa opening his crypt, is what he said. That was wonderfully said. I love it. Yeah. But I enjoyed that so much, much to the dismay of the lovely Lori. Okay. <sighs> but go ahead. You can put anything you want. But the most resistance I've had is they want the angel of the Lord on the list. The angel of the Lord is a theophany. That's Jesus Christ himself, as you know. You know that. That's the visible manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. And to re- repeat myself here, time itself is inside of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Revelations 1, 8. Revelations 1, 17. It is inside of him. He has time. It consists in him. Time itself is installed, is conceived by him. John 1, 1 through 4. He cannot be limited by time. You can't do it. And so do not mistakenly do that. When I was in Hawaii... I worked with um, children of, uh, that had needs. And I can't remember his name anymore. And I remembered him for the longest time. And I, Gabriel, I think his name was Gabriel. No, I can't remember. Doesn't sound right. Might be Daniel. But I would carry him around. He was unable. He was in a wheelchair. And so my job was to take him into the restroom or the bathroom and, and help him. And I wasn't, I was really good at carrying him because I was in much better shape than I am now. He weighed about 120 pounds. And I just pick him up and go. And so that's how I got the job. So I'm carrying him in there and I, I don't do a really good job of getting him properly uh, targeted. How's that? And it was uh, a mess. And he looked at me, his plaintive look in his face because I, now I had to clean all this up, and some of it was on both of us. Okay, all of it was on both of us. And he just looked at me and he said, Why you do that? <laughs> and I had no answer. So don't mistakenly do that. Don't limit Christ by time. Anyway, I have no quarrel with including the angel of the Lord. I don't. Genesis 16, 7 through 9, Genesis 16, 13. Uh, you are the God who sees. That is the what that is how he is described. You are the God who sees. This is the first mention in scripture of the angel of the Lord, is Genesis 16, 17, or 7 through 9 and Genesis 16, 13. You'll also see it in Exodus 3, 2, 6, Exodus 3, 14. That is the angel of the Lord there. Exodus 12, 23 is likely the preeminent scripture as far as the church recognizes with respect to the angel of the Lord. 2 Samuel 24, 16 connects Genesis, Exodus 12, 12 and Exodus 12, 23. That's what? That's the plague, right? The angel of the Lord. Is, that's the Passover. The angel of the Lord in Genesis 16:13, Exodus 4:24, Joshua 5:13, where the angel of the Lord confronts Joshua. Numbers 22, 22 through 24, 22, 31 through 35, all belong to the discussion. When you begin to search out the angel of the Lord, Isaiah 37:36, First Chronicles 21:14 through 15, Exodus 14:19. These are those that provide the introduction to that subject. And I don't have a problem. I put it in my addendum. It's actually on the board. I have it on the board. Uh, where do I have it? Oh, I have it on number M. Why does Christ call himself the angel of the Lord? Why does he do that? I would submit that that would be uh, a concern for some, an inaugural concern. Uh, let me reform it just a bit. Why does the God of creation, the creator of the angels, refer to himself as an angel? In this case, the angel of the ineffable name, the Tetragrammaton, the YHVH. So I have the unmade one. You cannot. Who made God, of course, by Edgar Andrews, covered this beautifully. He's unmade. So your question is, is who made the unmade one? And this course uh, renders it uh, to be uh, absurd. The unmade one, the uncreated one, assumes a title that seems to associate with those whom he created. Why would he do that? 
he obviously has a reason to call himself the angel of the Lord. Anyway, in my defense, I did put it in, in M, because here's Melchizedek. And, and with Balaam, because Balaam, the angel of the Lord, confronts Balaam. So I had it in both places. Melchizedek, as you know, is of particular interest, especially if one accepts the argument that Melchizedek is, in fact, Christ, which is my position. I believe that it's clearly obvious that he is. I know there's a lot of disagreement. Most people think he's a type of Christ, a portrait of Christ. I disagree. I think he is absolutely Jesus Christ himself, pre-incarnate, timeless, outside of time Christ. That's who he is. And therefore, Melchizedek is the angel of the Lord. That's the first place that I would say that you find it in Scripture. Because Melchizedek has the office of high priest of God. That's his office. Which, one again, once again, that raises all kinds of questions. Why does Christ do this? Why does he come and stand before Satan and Abraham? At Genesis 14, 18 through 22 demonstrating that he will eventually be the high priest of God Most High, the king of Jerusalem, because he, Melchizedek is called the king of Salem. That's the king of Jerusalem. King of peace. That's the title of Christ and Christ alone. He's the king of Jerusalem. He's the king of peace. He's the, the high priest of God Most. And the, high, and the king. He's both. And that, of course, causes all kinds of problems for Melchizedek and Christ. Not all kinds of problems. It's pretty clear, obviously, because Numbers 3, 5 through 13 is definitive. Only a descendant of Aaron can be the high priest of Israel. Christ is not a descendant of Aaron. Who is he a descendant of? David, yes. He's Davidic. He's not Aaronic. No, couldn't do it. Tried. <laughs> so the kings of Israel and Judah were never Levites. Uh, Psalm one ten four though uh, is an enigma because somehow it seems to imply a Davidic king could be the high priest. And we know when we put all of that together, we know that that's a prophecy of Christ Himself. Christ is the king of Israel, and He will set His throne in the holy of holies. Which means he's also at the same time what? If he's in the Holy Holies, who is he? Who, who's the only one that can enter into the Holy of Holies? Christ, I'm sorry, the high priest can. So if he puts his throne in the Holy of Holies, he is both king and high priest simultaneously. And that's what he does. So we know it's a prophecy of Christ, who is the king of Israel and who will set his throne in the Holy of Holies. Only again, the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies. Melchizedek, who in Hebrews 7... One through four was without genealogy, never had a beginning of days nor an end of life. He had neither. That's Revelation 1, 8, 1, 17 through 18. Christ says the very same thing about himself. He never had a beginning. He never has an end. And then Melchizedek is described the same way in, in Hebrews 7. Who can it possibly be? Who does not have a beginning and does not have an end that isn't infinite? Melchizedek is, asking, is saying that he is infinite. I'm sorry, Hebrews 7, 1 through 4 says, Paul says he is. I believe Paul wrote, wrote Hebrew. So Christ is displaying that he, by being Melchizedek, because he is Melchizedek, is pre-incarnate, outside of time Christ. He's, what he intended to demonstrate with Abraham and Satan there, that Christ only can unify the kingship with the high priest office. Because the penalty of being a non-Levite, again, Numbers 3, 10, 3, 38, is death. If you're not high priest and you're not a Levite and you go into the Holy of Holies, you will die. That cannot happen to Christ because who is Christ? He's life. He says so. I'm life. Death cannot affect life. And again, we're back into his existence, right? So... And if Christ alone, a Davidic king, can do this, then Melchizedek, the priest forever, the infinite eternal priest, must be Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, timeless Christ. Only God can bless himself as an aside. I should say, by the way. By the way, only God can bless himself. You cannot bless God. What, are you crazy? He blesses you. And, and Melchizedek blessed God. 
He can only bless God if he is part of the triunity of God. So, Genesis 14.20. That's why Melchizedek is on the board, because he belongs here with respect to the ascension of Christ and the high priest uh, office that Christ is entering when he ascends. And you have to go to Melchizedek when you end up with the high priest office, because the ascension of Christ disproves, that's right, Genesis 3.4. And you need to know why. If you're going to be in a church business for the truth instead of the money. I have a shirt that doesn't have a pocket on it. Obviously, I don't have any money. (laughs) All of this to say, the ascension of Christ and the person of Melchizedek are incredible truths. Okay, moving along. Let's see if we can make sense of Revelation 9. How am I doing? Doing pretty good. Revelation 9 is amazing. As you know, I've done it before. We're doing it again because of how it fits. I can't read all of it. I wish I could. There's 12 verses, but time won't allow for that. I can't. Can you lick your fingers anymore in this world? In your own book. Okay. In your own book. I'll wipe it off. Okay. Revelation 9. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit that came out. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were excuse me, <clears throat> commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. How about that? Isn't that interesting? And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months, 150 days. Well, where is that on? Oh, here it is, H. I don't know if you can see it. <coughs> Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. And then he goes on to say uh, to bring up Abaddon, uh, who is the king of the bottomless pit, the angel of the bottomless pit. So we're going to skip to, to uh, 12. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, I think this is pre-flood Euphrates, not post-flood Euphrates River. So we have no idea. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, John says. And thus I saw the horses in the sign, in the sight. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And you'll see their tails are like servants, serpents having heads. But by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. So we'll go on to that here in a second. Okay, somehow the star fallen from heaven to the earth is given the key to the abyss. Obvious question immediately uh, is what's going on here? We've we got to ask the obvious question that is obvious. He's releasing smoke that darkens the sun and the air. Why did the one who has all the keys, and that is Christ... The keys to Hades and death, Revelation 118, has the key of David, Revelation 3.7. Why does he give the key to the abyss to Satan? Why would Christ give the key to the star fallen? And obviously I think that's Satan. Bonus question. What's the difference between Hades and death? He has the keys to Hades and death, Christ does. What's the difference? Death is obviously real death. Whereas he has the key to what? What is real death? death. Say that again? Eternal death. That's right. What's, what's it called? Where's the place? He's got a key to a place. 
It's the lake of fire. I answered a question. Give me a cookie. Okay, extra credit bonus question. Why did God reveal again this 173.880? Daniel 9.25.27. That's the 494.94.83. Why does he, that leads us to the tribulation. Why did he tell us when the time of the tribulation would be? Why did he tell us when the time of the crucifixion would be? Why is he telling us these things? Because I can figure out the tribulation. If I know the time of the crucifixion, I can get to the tribulation. I can get really close. I think we're really close, obviously. 173,880 divided by 360 days equals 483 years. Everybody knows that. If you want to think of it this way, 173,880 is divided by 483 years equals 360 days. You do either one. Math is fun. The point being, yeah, yeah, point. The 360 days is a prophetic year. We have a 365, right? Point 24. The Bible establishes 360 days, though. 30 days, 12 months. As the standard, Genesis 7, 11 through 12, in the 600th year, 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. That's what it says, Genesis 7, 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And I have in Revelation 9, 150 days. So I have two 150-day periods here, and they obviously are related. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, he said there wouldn't be math. I never said that. (laughs) Rule number two, there's always math. There's never not math. And, and okay, after that is Genesis eight four. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month. I should say really fast. That's two seventeens. That's the seventeenth day of the month, the seventeenth day of the month, the second month, and the seventh month. As an aside, one hundred and fifty three divided by seventeen is three times three times three. Everybody knows that. And that tells you the one hundred and fifty three fish of John that proves that Christ is God takes you back to. The flood, which is incredibly important. I told Mark from Texas when I read his letter, I said, I, I, I wish I could take a picture, essentially, of your faces when I start this. <laughs> because it's hilarious. But they're all wearing masks, Mark. And there's nothing I can do. They're hiding. <laughs> their dismay. Their sleepy eyes. Okay, so you have it. Uh, it's, I just gave it to you. I answered all of that. The 360 days is the prophetic year, as God counts. Do you get it? You got it? Because it's demonstrated by the Noadic flood. The second month and the, and the seventh month. Perhaps some of you would desire a more uh, comprehensive explanation. Maybe. <laughs> My method is not to give you the answer. As much as I love cookies... It's really to just lead you to where the answers are. I, I told you I'm doing chess puzzles. I turn off the answers. I don't want to know the answer. I, he, he gives me the puzzle. And then I have to figure out what the answer is. That's how I want to think. And I, I do pretty good all the way up to about 2200. When those puzzles start to give me, those are defensive puzzles. Those are positioning puzzles. I'm really good at, at uh, at figuring out the ones that are easy, I guess, all the way up to 2,000. Anyhow, I digress again. Let me... Uh, I, I am aware of the general antipathy towards mathematics. I am, in spite of my best efforts to assuage as many people as possible. The rains began on the 17th day of the second month. Got it? 17th day of the second month. And ended on the 17th day of the seventh month. How many days does the Bible say that is? Because it says it. It says it's 150 days. So five months is 150 days. So how many days in a month? In the Bible. 30. If there's 30 days in the month, then how many days in a year? 360. Not 365.24. 150 months. I'm sorry, 150 days, five months of 30 days each. 
Therefore, a prophetic calendar year would be 360 days. I get another cookie. There's your answer. The Bible says a year is 360 days and a month is 30 days. Uh, the calendar year at that time of Noah was 360 days. Now, some of you in the cliffside, vast internet audience will want to debate whether this is the Mosaic religious calendar or the Hebrew civil calendar. Obviously, Noah came before Moses. And the Bible in Genesis 7 and 8 tells you this just without stuttering. 360, 30, 12. Equally obvious, God established the religious calendar for the nation of Israel based on 150 days of the Noahic flood, the 360, the 12 months, 30 day calendar. And that has all kinds of implications. If the original countdown clock, which is day four, the sun and the moon, had an exact 24 hour rotation, where the earth rotation was exactly 24 hours, because it's not that today, right? It's 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 4 seconds. But if it was exactly 24 hours, if that's true, with respect to the earth rotation, and it had an exact 360-day orbit around the sun, which is what the Bible is saying. Uh, again, Genesis 1:16 and 19, 7, 11, 8, 4. The, the, the earth was, uh, was divided into two perfect 12-hour periods of light and darkness. Light and darkness. One rotation of the earth was precisely 24 hours, or two twelves, and the earth's orbit around the sun, one year, 12 months, 360 days. Then the original counting system of God is not consistent with the rotation in the orbit today. It's not. That's why I said, why did he give us 173,880? Because 173,880 divided by 360 gives me 483. It's perfect. And that's all this, all this problem that you have trying to figure things out because you have to know how God counts. Why does he stick with his 360, uh, 173,880 and 12? I got that out of order, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's not congruent with what we do today, and it's not congruent with the lunar months that we have today. Because what did he have for a lunar month? 30 days. We don't have that. We have 365.24. We got 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 4 seconds. We got 29.53 days. And that's how we get to 7.3825 days in a week. He had seven days in a week. And if you read the ancient histories, you'll find the 360, uh, the seven days, the 24 hours, the... Uh, 30 days in the month, 30 days in the lunar calendar, all of that is very common. So if one accepts the 360 days as the original way God counts, then what's happened? Then the only explanation is that that the clock is running slower. Entropy has occurred. The earth is orbiting slower today than it did at Genesis uh, 1-4, Genesis 7. And if this is true, what's the obvious question that's obvious? If it's true, then when did it happen? Yeah, you have to answer that. You have to have an answer. No time today to continue with this other than to point out that Revelation 9, 5 through 6 has five months that are 30 days long. God is still counting in Revelation exactly the same way he counted in Genesis. And so that tells me I've got to learn how he counts. I made that point. Figure out how God counts. And then you've got to try to figure out where that, what that means today. He still is on the same process. So, the 150 days is an attribution. It's a corroboration to Genesis 7.24 of Revelation 9.5-6. It's going back there to Genesis 7.24 with Revelation 9.5-6. And I'm therefore suggesting that God remains steadfast to his timepiece, his clock, his watch. He still goes by that time. Entropy does not affect him. He's infinite energy. And to reword this somewhat, does the one who received and cons- who in- I'm sorry, blah, blah. does the one who conceived and installed instituted time? Does he know what time it is? Can he keep his timeline straight? Of course he can. I should mention that the decline in the speed of the Earth orbit 
in the Earth's orbit has generally thought to have become, it was recognized between 1000 and 500 BC, they began to think that the Earth is slowing down. And that would make sense with the second law of thermodynamics, right? But when did the Earth, that's when they recognized it, but when did it actually change? When did it, when did this discrepancy between 360 and 365.24, when did that actually happen as opposed to when was it finally recognized or known? And again, this affects the barley harvest and the Egyptian flood and etc., etc., etc. All that needs an adjustment in order to keep it consistent. Uh, Ishtar, Passover, all of that. Okay. Have you pronounced your position as to why the one who has all the keys, Revelation 118, Revelation 3.7, he's got all the keys. He's the angel of YHVH. He's the angel of the Lord. Why does Jesus Christ give the key to the bottomless pit to the star fallen from heaven? Here, Satan's your key. Go. What's Satan going to do with it? Obviously, God knows what Satan's going to do with it. Satan knows that God knows what Satan's going to do with it. God knows that Satan knows. Everybody knows. Christ, omniscient God, who knows all things, gave the key to Satan, gave him permission, essentially. When he handed him the key, that's permission to loose the king of the abyss, Abaddon, and the four angels who are bound, and the 200 million horsemen released the four angels. It was the voice from the golden altar of God. So who gave that command? Let that germinate for a while. 200 million like horses and riders came forth to kill humans. I'm skipping Abaddon and I'm going straight to the four angels here. They came forth to kill humans after the 150 days expire. (coughs) Excuse me. The 150 days of no death. So I have 150 days of no death where (coughs) the, let me read it again. They were not but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Who's the men that have the seal of God on their foreheads? That's Revelation 7. It's 144,000. Now, you could make the case that that's all saved people. So we'll have to argue that as time goes by. But definitely, if you go back to Revelation 7, and the 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel, uh, all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So I would think it more likely that it was referring back to that, but you can argue with me. 200 million come out of the, uh, released by the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates pre-flood. Notice again that God refers to the earth in a pre-flood condition. Uh, I think that's obvious and I think it's designed. They come forth to kill humans after the 150 days of torment, the 150 days of no death, Revelation 9-6. And a great war then ensues, a huge war. And the duration of this campaign has been suggested to be, by many commentators, about 18 months. So I have five months of no death, and then I have 13 months of total war. Um and I think that that position prevails. And it ends at the first half of the tribulation. So that this is this is in the beginning of the tribulation, the first three and a half years. And this war is 18 months of that period. And it ends right in the middle of the tribulation. And it seems that humanity was able to repel, if not physically kill, these 200 million who were led by the four angels. So the angels have to know they're going to lose. Because how many human beings do we have? We might have 8 billion now. Uh, and they have 200 million. But the losses were 10 to 1. In other words, they killed 2 billion, maybe 2.5 billion. Humanity kills 200 million of them. How do you kill them? How do they kill us? Obviously, they kill us, kill humans. So can they be killed? I think the intuitive answer would be yes. If they couldn't be killed, they, they wouldn't have stopped at 2 billion, right? In summation... Then a command from the golden altar of God release the four angels, the star fallen, releases, looses 200 million fallen demons. Incredible war results, unthinkable, unimaginable fighting, massive calories, calories, casualties. (laughs) But eventual victory by mankind. 
Why did Christ give Satan a key and start that? And obviously we return, we should return to Job 1, 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God, Genesis 6, sons of God, sons of God is Genesis 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, YHVH, and Satan also came with them. So that happened in Job 1, 6. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan said, I've been on the earth. And God asked, have you seen Job? And ultimately, Satan is given permission by God himself to attack Job. And Christ gives Satan the key, permission to attack the earth, humanity. But not kill him, Job 1.12, Job 2.6. Don't kill him. Same thing, Revelation 9.5. Don't kill him. Also recognize that Job is twice besieged. So there's two onslaughts. Again, Revelation 9, two onslaughts. The point being, yah squared point. <laughs> See how long I, I took to set that up? Yeah, yeah, point. <laughs> yah squared would imply yah, yah point. But yah, yah point could easily be read yay a point. It's a mystery. <laughs> it's amazing. Who thinks of this stuff? Some complete idiot does. Anyway... The point is that Job. <laughs> I deserved it. You should have said yeah, squared point. You know, you know that that Luke is coming from Ohio. I, I just can't. I can't even begin to. Again, he should. He should write for the Babylon Bee. Uh, Job one and two will provide commentary on the wise of Revelation nine, as will Joel one fifteen through two eleven. Joel gives you this exact. Is the similarities are. Obvious or strikingly similar. You can find this in Joel. A complement is Joel 1, 15 through 2, 11 to Revelation 9. Revelation 9, 20 through 21, though, provides the principal answer. So I should read that. By the rest of mankind, after the war is over, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, and they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So after this war, where two billion people were killed, the rest of mankind did not repent. Why not? It's been an amazing war. The ones that didn't get killed, they don't repent. They go right back to worshiping. They continue to worship demons. What is that? The very ones that came out to kill them, we think. Notice how I said that. They did not. They, they went back to worshiping those demons. Why are they worshiping the demons that are in the pit? How do they even know about the demons that are in the pit? They obviously worship them. Who's teaching them to worship them? This is, remember, the last 18 months of the first half of the tribulation. If that position is correct. They did not cease their murderings. What's the obvious question there? Who are they murdering? Who's getting murdered? They didn't. They, the, the actual it says uh, their murders, their sorceries. That's that's pharmaceutica. Uh, so that's where we get our pharmacological, our pharmaceutics. So that's intoxicants, that's drugs, that's narcotics. Humanity was worshiping demons, and God allows, permits Satan to reveal the true nature of those whom mankind, the world, was deifying, adoring, and praising, and singing oh, songs yeah. to. Let's them out. You're gonna worship these guys. I'm gonna let them out. Go get them. You should see what you're worshiping. So that that and two billion people are slaughtered. I think hand-to-hand combat until there's a temporary cessation, an interlude of the tribulation, the time of the middle. Why did the two billion? The, they fought for sure because they're dead. Who else fought? I want to know. I want to know. I want to go back to this but do not have the seal of God. If that's the Israeli 144,000, then that means something completely different. That means I have two groups of people, the dead and the not dead. And the not dead go back to worshiping Satan and the demon after that war. So that differentiates them from the dead. I want to know what happened to the dead. 
So the survivors revert to worshiping the very ones who, thought, who, who, who attacked them, who sought to kill them. And how is this explained? And, and who else fought, I think, answers the question. That's the question reworded. How is this explained is who else fought? Romans 1, 18 through 13, 32, sorry. The dark, vile, debased minds, the haters of God, knowing the goodness, the righteousness of God, nonetheless, they cling desperately to the vile, to evil, madness. That's what Romans 18 through 32, 1 through 18, 1, 18 through 32 says. So plainly, the releasing of Abaddon and the four fallen angels is to announce that the God of creation will judge and end evil. He's not going to let it go. You want to be evil? I'll show you who you're with. This is evil, personified. And they want you dead. They want you dead. The ones that survive, go right back to worshiping them. That interests me. Why would they do that? And so the releasing of Abaddon and the four fallen angels is to announce that the God of creation is going to judge and he's going to end evil. But it also includes this information, this knowledge of the depth of wickedness that exists with the the Jude 6, Genesis 6, sons of God. That left their state, that left their tent, remember the word, oiketerion. They left their tent. What does that mean, leave their tent? What, 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 what happened? If they left their tent, uh, did they get a new tent? If they did, how did that happen? You see, I want to know something. Who were the two billion killed? I want to know who they were. The tribulation had been in, in effect for at least 24 months, 720 days as God counts. Revelation 7, I have 144,000 sealed children of Israel. And they talk about a great multitude, an unprecedented salvation occurs in the first half of the, tri- of the tribulation. But those, those people are in white robes and they're at the throne of God. So that means what? They're dead. This uncounted multitude that were saved by the witness of the 144,000. I want to know. How'd they die? You've got, uh, you can't count them. There's so many of them. And, and they're saved, again, because of signs and wonders displayed to the world by God himself in the 144,000. And that makes me wonder again, who are these two billion slain? If the two billion slain were targeted then how were they targeted? So in other words, were they chosen to be killed? So do I have two groups of people, the survivors and the fighters, if you will, the ones who resisted the angelic horde. At two billion, and the rest are over here sitting it out. Why is it then, if I'm right, is, it, is there a targeting or is it just indiscriminate killing? If targeted, how could they identify, be identified? How could they identify them? You see where I'm going? One nodded yes, one nodded no. Perfect. (laughs) I wish both had said no, but that's okay. The worship of the Antichrist, the mark of the Satan man, is not yet. But it's coming. It's coming at the end of the cessation, the temporary cessation, the interim, the interlude. It comes right after that. Everybody that now that wants to worship the Antichrist gets a mark. So they didn't have a mark when the angels came out of the abyss. So how were they identified? How, how were the friend or foe identified? Or was it just indiscriminate killing? The worship of the Antichrist, the mark of the Satan man, is not yet both come in, a, in again in the temporary cessation period. Why is there a temporary cessation period? Why does everything stop? What is that? Nothing happens for a period of time. There's a temporary cessation of judgment here. See? That's why there's a temporary cessation. Because there's a temporary stopping of judgment. So I repeat, who are the two billion murdered? Who is, who is getting murdered in the tribulation? The first half of the tribulation. Primarily, generally, mostly, it is those who did not accept the lie of Satan. They rejected it. I think it's pretty clear. And how does that have anything to do with the mystery of the divine indwelling? Because they've got to do it. 
They got to do it. What does the second mystery have anything to do with this? Galatians 2, 20, Colossians 1, 26, 27, especially at Revelation 9. The mystery of the indwelling, Christ in us, Christ in the saved. Can the fallen angels see the indwelling? That's what I want to know. If they can, then that helps them target who they want to kill. Why would Satan want to kill the bodies of the saved? They can't get rid of their existence, and they will be resurrected. But why would he want to kill the bodies of the saved? Why wouldn't he kill the body of the murderers who worship demons? Why would he leave them alone? Would he, would he leave them alone? Would it be Now, this is an incredible chess player, Satan. So think about what he's thinking. If he kills people who would take the mark of the beast, then what's, what's, the, what's the problem for that? Consider that. If he kills people who would never take the mark of the beast, what's the advantage of that? Who are they? And the answer, uh, the obvious answer is obvious, I think. I won't give it away. I've already got two cookies. <laughs> that's, that's my limit. Okay, we will not be back until June the 6th. So we will see all of you folks in the Internet on June the 6th. God willing, if the creeks don't rise and the sheetrock job's done. I'm kidding about sheetrock job. It won't ever be done. We, we just pretend we're capable of remodeling bathrooms. Okay. Shutting it down.